Well, good morning. You know, some things are just uh, more important to, re to remember than others. I'm glad you put on pants this morning. That was an important thing to remember. You know, it, that's not just true of day in, day out life, but it's true in the big picture as well, especially in the ultimate big picture. Ultimately, there is just one thing that matters more than absolutely everything else. Before we begin to talk about what that one thing is, let me uh, briefly build my case. Uh, there are three biblical concepts that point us unflinchingly to this singular most important of all issues. First, there's what we read in James chapter 4. There in verse 14, James says that our lives are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And man, the older you get, the more you understand that. Isn't that true? Amen. Oh, man. You know, this time of year, usually when you walk outside in the morning into that cool, crisp air, you can see your breath. It's just a vapor that's, that's there for an instant, and then it, it, it's just gone. It dissipates. And we've got to remember, we've got to understand that our lives here on earth, they are like that vapor. They are, in the big picture, very brief. It goes fast, doesn't it? Before you know it, you're on the downhill side. And your life is coming towards its end. Secondly, we need to know that this life is not all there is. When we inevitably pass from this life, when our bodies die, that is not the end. We continue. And Jesus reminds us of this dynamic. And in John chapter 5, he, he says this about himself, uh, that, that we will one day all hear his voice calling us forth from the grave. He says, do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves, the dead people, which that one day will be us, they will hear his voice, the son of man's voice, and will come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. <clears throat> this life is not all there is. Thirdly, what determines whether we will experience what Jesus called the resurrection of life or what he called the resurrection of condemnation it isn't our feelings about how we have lived our lives, but rather it is God's evaluation. It is his judgment of how we have lived our lives. Hebrews 9.27 puts it this way. It is appointed for people, all of us, to die once and after this judgment. Put that all together. This life passes quickly. 
how we live in this life will determine the nature of how it is that we will live for all eternity and we will all live for all eternity. Because those things are true, the one thing, the one thing that matters more than anything, uh, the one thing that we've got to know for sure is how are we then to live? How, how do we live in such a way that it will please God? How do we be good enough to be accepted by God? What do we need to do in order to measure up? Most basically, how do you get to heaven? Getting that right is more important than what career field you will go into, where you will live, or even whom you will marry. As important as those things are, and they are vitally important, yet a thousand years from now, think about that for a minute, a thousand years from now, none of those things will matter in the least. But this question, this question will matter for all of eternity. Well, of course, this question is what is addressed in our passage this morning. So grab your Bibles, open up to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. Will you do this when you find Psalm 15? Will you please stand? I will read our passage, but I really want to encourage you to follow along. Psalm 15. From beginning to end, here's what it says. A Psalm of David. Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost, who does not lend silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. Let's pray. Father, uh, we ask that in this time, this morning, that you would grant us the grace to simply accept the truth of your word. God, not to run it through filters, dumbing it down, uh, degrading uh, what it is that you have said, but Lord, to take it at face value and to understand it correctly. God, open our eyes uh, to see uh, what it is that is needed for us to be in your presence for all of eternity. God, we, we recognize that is what you made us for. That is, that is the ultimate, is to be with you and to be with you for all eternity. That's our desire. So Lord, show us the path. Show us the way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Our culture is obsessed with what other people think about us. <laughs> we, we are constantly seeking to gain the approval and the admiration, or at least 
is the attention of others around us. Social media is built on that. It is designed to use that, that, that latent hunger for peer validation against us and to keep us either thirsting for one more like or one more reply or in an even more twisted way to keep us distracted from our own stuff by drawing us into scrolling through our feed like a Pharisee walks through the marketplace, noting everyone else's foolishness, shallowness, and carnality, and ignoring our own. We are far too concerned with what others think of us. And we're too concerned about what we think about ourselves as well. And we are not nearly enough concerned with what God thinks of us. So Psalm 15 asks the question, how does God see us? And it, and it answers it in a way that might surprise some of us. You see, when it comes to what pleases God, what addresses, well, what he addresses here are issues of integrity, uh, the sort of things that show the reality of who we are, uh, that reveal our hearts through our actions and they provide a glimpse behind the public facade. But before we begin to make a spiritual checklist out of this passage, know this. You're not going to measure up. You can't. It's beyond your reach. Understand this. The purpose of this psalm isn't to show you how you can earn and deserve God's approval. Rather, the purpose of this psalm is to give you the right grid through which you can examine yourself before you come to God so that you will see, so that you will realize that you are in desperate need of God's forgiveness and mercy. Understand this before we begin. Fellowship with God, because he is absolutely holy, it requires perfection. The Lord told his, told his people in Leviticus 19 that they needed to be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now notice this. The Lord doesn't say here, you need to be fairly holy because I, the Lord, your God, am rather holy. No, 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 no. This isn't about relative goodness. What he's talking about here is absolute goodness, perfection, complete holiness. You and I, we don't measure up to that. Oh, goodness, we don't even get close. We usually disappoint ourselves when we try to meet our own imperfect standards, let alone when we try to live up to God's standard of absolute holiness, we don't have a chance. So, if we're going to be judged by God according to the standard of perfect holiness, if we're going to meet that standard, it's only going to happen if we receive grace from God and are not judged according to our own works. Our only route to perfect holiness 
is going to be found by putting our faith in Christ. Do we get that? We've got to understand that. Paul, Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 3. There in verses 7 through 9. Basically, what he says is that nothing that we can do will benefit our standing before God. Only what Christ has done can save us. Here, Paul writes, he says, everything that was a gain to me, all of his religious works, all of his goodness, all of his moral superiority when compared to the rest of mankind, he says, I have considered those to be a loss, to be a debit rather than a credit upon the ledger of my life. He says, why? Because of Christ. You see, Paul saw himself as a relatively good human being until he compared himself to true holiness, until he compared himself to the Savior. More than that, he says, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, worthless so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And don't miss this, not having a righteousness of my own from the law. Paul says, I'm not depending on my performance. I'm not depending on my ability to meet the standard of God's perfect law, but rather the righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Paul abandons his own personal performance, his earned righteousness, and instead puts all his hope, his faith, entirely on the grace of God found in Jesus. Friends, that, that is our only hope. Now, as we think about that, for some of you, this might elicit a few questions. First, you might be wondering, why is God so stinking picky? I mean, he made us. He knows that we are fallible. Wouldn't it just be simpler if God were to lower his standard, understanding who we are? Well, we might think that's a good idea, but you've got to understand. You've got to understand. God's goal is for us to be with him. And if we are going to be with him, then we cannot harbor within ourselves any sin because sin itself is what keeps us from being with him. Understand this, God is perfectly just and we want God to be just, right? Uh, we often pray that God would bring justice into situations, just not upon us, just upon others, right? <laughs> But if God is perfectly just, then justice will demand that God hold to a perfect standard. And understand this. It isn't like our sin is a danger to God. God isn't you know, cowering in heaven saying, oh, I can't let you in here because you would taint me. No, rather, our sin is a danger to us because of God's holiness. His absolute holiness is a danger to any who are polluted with sin. As Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. Secondly, you might be wondering, 
if we can only be saved by grace, then why do we need this list at all? I mean, does it really even matter? Well, I see two uh, very significant benefits derived from this passage and from others that are just like it. First, through passages like this, we come to understand more about who God is. Uh, We see his holiness not just as a, a theological concept, but as a practical reality. You and I, we read that God is holy, but there is something far more tangible and more apprehensible when we know that God is not only holy, but that he demands truth, that he condemns gossip, that he demands that we keep our word, and that he won't put up with us taking advantage of the poor. We understand God more as we understand holiness more practically. Secondly, though we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and by the work of Christ alone, though we are justified by God, yet while we wait for that day when when we will eventually see Christ face to face, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, in that moment, on that day, In a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and what will happen? We will be changed. About that change, Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That God is, he is going to bring us to that place of holiness. As 1 John 3.2 tells us, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We are saved by grace. One day, God will in an instant transform us and make us completely holy. And yet, until that day, we know this to be true as well. While we wait for that day, The Lord is working in our lives, isn't he? He's bringing conviction upon our hearts. He's bringing situations to bear upon us, to cause us to turn to him and to be changed by him. The Lord is working in us bit by bit to transform us and to change us. And he calls us, he commands us to labor with him in that process. The Lord calls us as his followers to obedience, to obedience. And our aim, our target, though unattainable on our own power, yet our target, our aim is holiness. Because he repeats it in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1.16, the Lord says, be holy because I am holy. So God speaks to us. He speaks to you and to me. And he says, listen, I am a holy God. And this is what this is what I'm calling you to. I am calling you to become holy like I am holy and not sort of holy, not holier than others, not holier than thou. Certainly not that. But holy as he is holy. And passages like Psalm 15 make that target more tangible. So, knowing that we are saved by grace, 
And yet we, to, we are to embrace this process of transformation that he will one day finish. Thank God for that. Let's begin to walk through this psalm. Look there at verse one. David asks, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Speaking of the tent of the tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwelt in his day, who can live on your holy mountain? It's a good question. A thousand years from now, that's the only question that will really matter. said earlier that God, our God is a consuming fire. I think back to God's response in Leviticus chapter 10 to two wayward priests, uh, Nadab and Abihu. Remember them? They're the, the sons of Aaron. They didn't take God's call to holiness seriously. They thought that their standards were probably just as valid as God's standards. But when they tried to enter into God's presence their way, according to their own, uh, their own standards, when they entered the tabernacle, they were literally consumed by fire. Friends, we've got to know, God isn't kidding around here. Who can enter into his presence? Well, look at verse two. Only the one who lives blamelessly, who practices righteousness and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Understand, this doesn't say the one who lives relatively blamelessly. It doesn't say he who practices more righteousness than the rest of the people around them or acknowledges the truth for the most part. Don't breeze by what it says. The standard here is perfection. It's perfection. And clearly on our own, it is out of our reach. Uh, that's why Psalm 24, another psalm that addresses this same question, follows this same pattern. It, it states clearly in verse five that the only one who can stand in God's presence is the one who receives blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God. Isn't that exactly what Paul said? Why, yes, it is. The only one who can stand in God's presence is the one who has come by grace and who has received righteousness from God. It is only by grace that we will ever attain the standard that God has set. It is only when we see Jesus face to face and are changed by the power of his love that we can meet the standard of righteousness, blamelessness, and standing with the truth, unwavering. Can you imagine that? I can't imagine that for myself. But that day, when that day comes, we will be blameless, pure, innocent, washed clean by the blood of Jesus. No longer any regrets. We will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, as Paul talks about in Philippians 3, not having a righteousness of our own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. And on that day, we will 
acknowledge the truth in our heart. Remembering that in Scripture, the heart isn't just about emotions, but it's about the will. It's about making that firm decision, about being steadfast in holding to the truth. That's what will come eventually, but in the midst of this life, we are to seek after that. We are to aim at that same target. We are to ask God to build this into us, to shape us uh, so that we might more and more day after day uh, begin to fit this description, uh, that he would discipline us, that he would make us more and more like Jesus. And so we pray for God to work that into us. And we must also practically choose to seek after those things. And that's going to mean that not only will we seek after righteousness and goodness, but we will also have to avoid other things. Look at verse 3. Who can stand in God's presence? The one who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor. Their words don't harm others. You know, as often as the Lord condemns gossip, you'd think that his people would be awful careful to avoid it. And yet gossip always seems to be a problem. Uh, scripture warns us against it, against slander, against talking about others. And yet even the best of us are susceptible to this. Friends, guard yourselves. Don't talk about others. And don't listen to someone else who is talking about others. If you give an ear to someone who is slandering, who is tearing down another, you are guilty of gossip too. Don't let yourself be sucked into that. Take heart to the warning of Psalm 101, there in verse five. There the Lord says this, I will destroy anyone who secretly slanders his neighbor. I cannot tolerate anyone with haughty eyes or an arrogant heart. Doesn't that describe our attitude when we begin to talk about others? And now some of you might think, well, wait a minute. What are we supposed to do then when, when we have an issue with someone? Well, that's an easy answer. Talk to them, not about them. Uh, follow the mandate that Jesus gives us in Matthew 18. Oh, it might be a frightening prospect, but this is what we are called to do. This is what we are instructed to do. Hey, there Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, step one, go and tell him his fault. Not go and tell others about it. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, You've won your brother. Follow this process to the end. Take it step by step as Jesus lays it out. And then trust him with it. Trust him to deal with the issue when you follow the process that he has laid out. And remember, remember that we are a community of grace. <coughs> We need to treat each other with the same graciousness that the Lord has poured out upon us. And don't you want that? I want that. 
Remember what Proverbs 10, 12 says. Hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. That's not just an Old Testament thing. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Instead of listening to gossip, rebuke it. Instead of talking about someone, love them enough to talk to them. Verse 4. Notice the second thing that the Lord chooses to demonstrate holiness. Who can stand in God's presence? The one who despises, the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord. Basically, what, what David is saying here is, Make the decision to agree with the Lord. Choose to let the Lord choose for you. Decide that whatever the Lord decides, that is going to be what you decide. Accept without reservation his decisions as final. No matter what the culture says, no matter what you think, he is the final authority for your life. After all, we call him Lord. We call him God. That implies that regardless of what we think, what he speaks should have authority within our lives. Yeah, that will create a consistency in how you live. A, a consistency because uh, there aren't going to be all these exceptions and variations in situations. Uh, people will know what your response is going to be if you stay in line with what the Lord says. Because we always know what to expect from the Lord. He will always do what's right. Hebrews 13.8 reminds us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, in line with that consistency, the second half of verse 4, he says, who keeps his word, whatever the cost. Uh, most simply put, as Ecclesiastes 5.5 5 instructs us, it is better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. In other words, keep your word. Do whatever it is that you've said you're going to do. Now, Proverbs 6 does tell us that, that it is better to, to go and to beg for mercy from the one to whom you promised than to keep a foolish promise. We've all been there, haven't we? Oh, we've promised something that was ridiculous. Or we've promised something that, that we thought was reasonable at the time, but now we find that it's something that is, well, it was a foolish promise to make. Let's just be honest. Proverbs 6 tells us it's better to go and to beg for mercy than to just blindly keep a foolish promise. But in general, as a rule, we need to be those who keep our word. Look at verse 5. Who can be in God's presence? The one who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. 
Oh, they're not controlled by money. That isn't their greatest pursuit. You know, it's thought that in general, amongst the Jews of that time, money was only borrowed usually when there was a desperate need. You would only borrow if you, if you could not feed your family or if you're going to lose your land, perhaps because of failed crops. But regardless of the situation, the law clearly forbade charging a fellow Israelite interest on a loan. Here's the thought. Here's the perspective that shapes all of this, both the charging of interest and the taking of a bribe. He says, your family, your family and his family, you're supposed to take care of each other, not take advantage of each other. Uh, Leviticus chapter 25 says this, if your brother, speaking not of a blood brother, but of a fellow Israelite, if your brother becomes destitute and cannot sustain himself among you, you are to support him. Support him as an alien or a temporary resident so that he continue to live among you. Do not profit or take interest from him, but fear your God and let your brother live among you. You're not to lend him your silver with interest or sell him your food for profit. And then look at how the Lord ends this. He reminds him, I'm the Lord your God. Remember me? I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Remember that? You were a slavery. You had nothing. And I gave you everything. I didn't charge you interest. I didn't take advantage of you. But I gave you this land. I am your God. In other words, they were to care for each other selflessly. They were, to put it in New Testament terms, as Paul says in Philippians 2, they were to do nothing out of selfish ambition or, and I like the way the NIV puts it, or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. And you know, I bet if they did that, and I bet if you and I, if we began to care for each other in that way, I bet that just like Jesus says in John 13, 35, that everyone would know that we are his disciples if we love one another. You know, this, this list here in Psalm 15, it certainly is not a complete list of the marks of someone who belongs to the Lord. Psalm 24 and Isaiah 33, 14 to 16, they, they provide other examples of righteousness in passages that follow this very same outline. Again, these things aren't a checklist. And aren't you glad they're not? Because you'd never get a passing grade. Only Jesus, only Jesus can do all of this perfectly. Only Jesus is the one who, as verse 5 says, does these things and will never be shaken. Jesus has fulfilled every requirement of this psalm, every requirement of the law. He is the only man who ever lived 
a truly blameless, a truly righteous life. He's the only one who always did what was right and always spoke the truth in his heart. As 1 Peter chapter 2 says, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Absolute perfection. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly through the difficulties of life. He lived perfection. And yet, it says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, speaking of the cross. He paid the penalty of sin. He paid the penalty on our behalf. He bore our sins so that you and I, having died to sin, having turned away from sin and now pursuing righteousness, that we might live for righteousness. We are saved by grace, but that doesn't mean that we just kind of you know, give it all up. Who cares how we lived? And no, 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 no. We who have, have come to Christ, we have died to sin. We have died to living for ourselves. And we now live for righteousness. And, and then Peter reminds us, by his wounds, you have been healed. We have been freed from sin. We have been freed from that captivity that we now can. We now have the ability to turn from sin, to embrace his grace and his righteousness. He says, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And it's all because of Jesus. It's because he bore our sin. It's because he healed us in regards to our captivity to sin. He has set us free, free to live a life that is real, that is exactly what God designed it to be, free to pursue righteousness rather than pursue sin, free to choose to let the Lord guide us into life. And if, like David says in Psalm 16, 8, we will always let the Lord guide us, then we too will be able to declare with him because he is at our right hand, we will not be shaken. This is God's desire for us. That we would, we would give ourselves to the pursuit of righteousness. Not out of fear that we, we won't make it or that we won't measure up, but knowing that he has guaranteed the end from the beginning that if we have put our hope and our faith in Christ, he says, keep going, keep going. I'm gonna get you there. I'm gonna bring you there. We stand with me while I pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. Oh, how we need grace. God, we see that we don't measure up. We need your forgiveness, your cleansing.
We need to be clothed with your righteousness. We need you to be at work within us, setting us free from old ways, old habits, old patterns, from the brokenness. We need you to teach us how to live in ways that reflect you. God, we pray that each day you would make us more and more like Jesus. You'd confront us. You would free us. You would transform us. And God, we look forward to that day when we see you face to face and you will bring this work to completion. We'll be free. We'll be what you created us to be. And we will be in your presence for all eternity. We thank you for that. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.